All right, well, uh, like Darren said, we are in a series called Differences and Divisions. Do our differences have to lead to our division? Um, it's no secret. There are lots of differences uh, that are existing in our world right now, within our nation, even like perhaps within our denomination, right? And um, the fact that like we within the church are not immune to this, this difference um, well, I, I think we're, we're well aware of that, right? And even within like our, our Mennonite Anabaptist tradition, like we have our own sort of history of, dare I say, splintering over conflict. And so that leads us to ask this question of like, do our differences have to lead to our division? And as I've said each week, like I'll show my cards, like I don't think they have to. And so um, last few weeks we've been asking this question, we'll ask it this week and next week. And um, we're looking at examples from the New Testament where, um, again, I, I handpicked these, right? But we're trusting the bigger arch of the New Testament as we do this. That, like, I think we can hold difference, and I think we can move forward in a way that doesn't have to lead to division. So that's our, that's our prayer throughout the series, um, that we can choose a, a better way forward. So as we, uh, you know, continue on talking about heavy things like this. Uh, let's pause for a word of prayer and invite or recognize God's spirit here among us. Loving God, uh, we are grateful for this chance to be together. Um, we're grateful for this gift that we call uh, the church. Uh, we're grateful for the gift of technology so that um, those that are not able to join us this morning uh, can still do so through Zoom. And God, uh, we're grateful for the gift of your spirit. We pause now and we acknowledge that your spirit is here among us. And as we uh, turn and wrestle with the scriptures together, uh, we yield ourselves to your spirit. God, would your spirit lead us, guide us, shape us, and form us more and more into the way of Jesus. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I once heard someone say that there are essentially two types of people in the world. Those who shower before work and those who shower after work. And no, this is not a comment on hygiene patterns among us human beings, but rather it's a commentary on work and the types of work that we engage in, right? So you can imagine that there are people who work in like close quarters with one another, right? Or work inside or just, you know, among other people and you want to wash the stank off before you get to work, right? And so you, you uh, shower before you get to work so that you can be among people and not offend, right? But there's other people who uh, maybe work outside or, you know, unlike me, uh, don't just sit and read all day, but they do like hard physical manual labor, right? And so like, why would they wash the stank off when the stank is about to come with work, right? And so they need to uh, shower after work. Two broad stroke, or er, uh, painting in broad strokes, two different types of people, those who shower before work and those who shower after work. Now, if we just stopped here, that would be totally fine. But we as human beings seem to have this like insatiable desire to assign things like value and worth based on even like seemingly insignificant things like when someone showers. Here's what I mean by this. When it comes to uh, jobs that ask us to shower before them, we tend to call these like white collar jobs, right? And there's all sorts of things that we, uh, uh, all, all sorts of connotations that come with these white collar jobs. We tend to think of those that work in white collar jobs as those that are educated, those that are sophisticated, 
uh, those that tend to be a little bit more wealthy, right? These are the people that at a dinner party, if there's two forks, they know which one to use, right? And because of all of this, these are people that we tend to look up to. But those who shower before work, these tend to be uh, related with what we call like blue-collar jobs. And when it comes to blue-collar jobs, um, the connotations that come with them tend to be that these people are uneducated, that they're like the working class, they're a little rough around the edges, right? And they tend to be a little bit more poor. These are the people that if they sit down at a dinner party and there's two forks, they would say, where's my hamburger? Because I want to get my hands on them, right? Um, these are people that we, again, generally speaking, tend to look down upon. Now, unfortunately, this impulse within us as human beings to look up to or look down upon people over these seemingly arbitrary sorts of things, like when someone showers before or after work, or the type of work that they give themselves to, this impulse within us to assign worth and value based on these seemingly arbitrary sorts of things seems to be about as old as time itself. And so, for example... Uh, one of the ways that we see this playing out throughout the scriptures is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This seems to be some of the dynamics that's taking place within um, uh, chapter 11. So the scenario that's taking place within uh, 1 Corinthians as a whole is this is a church that's stumbling their way forward together. <laughs> There's all sorts of like uh, differences that are popping up along the way, and they're trying to like figure out, in light of this... Um, massive revelation of Jesus, like how do we live out this way of Jesus together? And as they're doing it, they're, they're, it's a clunky sort of movement, right? <laughs> they're stumbling over one another, they're bumping into one another, there's disagreements. And so Paul is writing to this, this church that's trying to live out this way of Jesus together. And throughout the letter, we see him commending certain things, like saying, hey, good job, like you're doing, you're doing well, keep it up. We see him in other parts of the letter, um, um, uh, correcting certain things, like, hey, I, I see what you're doing here. You're heading down this path. Maybe just skew it a little bit this way, and this is what, what it means to be part of the, the way of Jesus. But then we see other parts of the letter where Paul is just absolutely berating them for certain things, saying, like, how dare you do this? Like, what in the world were you thinking as you pursued this, right? And so one of the uh, areas where we see Paul doing this sort of berating them is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which is often referred to as like the abuses around the Lord's Supper. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 17, Paul writes to them, Now in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. Indeed, there have to be factions among you, for only so will it become clear who among you are genuine. When you come together, it's not really to eat the Lord's Supper. For when the time comes to eat, each of you goes ahead with your own supper. One goes hungry and another becomes drunk. I don't know what your experiences with the Lord's Supper are, but I've never been part of one where somebody leaves hungry and another one leaves drunk. So maybe we need a little bit of background here, right? In the early church... Uh, um, the Lord's Supper or communion or Eucharist, whatever language you're, you're comfortable with. Um, this, was, this was part of every sort of worship gathering and this was like the pinnacle of the, the celebration. This was the pinnacle of their time together where they would sit down and share a meal uh, with one another. Because in this time period, like to share a meal with someone, to share at the table was to share in life together. And this was seen as a very, very intimate sort of act. And so this was the culmination of their worship together, sharing life, sharing the table with one another. Now, 
that still doesn't explain why some uh, go away hungry and another one becomes drunk. So what, what are, what's happening here that, that leads to a situation where one can go away hungry and another can uh, leave drunk? It all comes back down to the fact that some people shower before work and some people shower after work. See, it seems as though there are certain people who, because of their work or because of their life circumstances, are able to show up to this worship gathering on time. And because they show up on time, they begin to get a little impatient, they begin to get a little hungry, they begin to get a little hangry. Everybody know what I'm talking about, right? And so they begin to just eat. And they begin to eat and eat and eat and eat and eat until, like, there's no more food. But there are other people, the people who shower after work, I don't actually know if they shower after work. I'm not an expert on first century hygiene, but the, the imagery is helpful, right? But there are those who, who shower after work. They spend all day out in the fields. They're the laborers that doing the hard manual work. They're not able to call the shots when they get off work, and they're not able to show up on time. And so they have to, they have to work, they have to go home, they have to get cleaned up, and then by the time they show up, there's nothing left in the dinner. Some, uh, the, those that are able to arrive early, the wealthy, leave drunk and full, and those who arrive late, the poor, leave hungry and thirsty. Paul's response to this is, what? Always a great response, right? What? Do you not have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you show contempt for the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I commend you? In this matter, I do not commend you. Paul, uh, a little feisty here. He's not a big fan of this sort of dynamic that's taking place. Now, what happens next is he begins to, to uh, go into like, this, this teaching on like, the Lord's Supper. And it, this is often like our go-to passage, but it's helpful to remember that like, he's not doing like, a theological treatise here, right? Like this is, this is in context of this bigger argument. So this is him correcting them, pointing them into a better way forward. He says, so I, I receive, for I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took a loaf of bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So here Paul gives these two instructions about the bread and the cup. And notice that one word is used repeated in both of these instructions. And that's the word remembrance. We do the bread in remembrance of Jesus. We take the cup in remembrance of Jesus. Now in first century Jewish imagination, remembrance was more than just simply calling to mind. But to remember something was to remember it. To put flesh back on it. And so in this, uh, within the confines of this church, as they began to partake in this sacred holy meal together, they were in a sense to remember or take on the flesh of Jesus as individuals, but more importantly as a community as they engaged in this act together. As they ate this meal, it was supposed to be some sort of symbolic gesture that brought about the life, the teachings, the death, the resurrection of Jesus in their very midst. So we have to ask, is this what was happening? Absolutely not. <laughs> and so Paul then tells them, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be answerable for the body and the blood of Jesus. 
That phrase, unworthy manner, feels really important because if you do this in an unworthy manner, you're going to be answerable for the body and blood of the Lord. Not something I want to be responsible for, right? So what does it mean to partake in an unworthy manner? Well, remember the context in which all of this is happening in. There's, there's some, some, some dynamics that are happening uh, within the community. And it seems as though some are ignoring these dynamics within the community. The fact that some can arrive on time and others can't arrive on time. And so to, to eat the bread and drink of the cup in an unworthy manner seems to ignore the social dynamics that are at play, these social realities that are at play within the community. And as a re- result of ignoring these dynamics, also ignoring the needs of others within the community. Now, these, these dynamics are based on all sorts of different things, right? Um, but we come to like this, this uncomfortable truth and this uncomfortable reality that some of us have more power and privilege than others. And I know that that's uncomfortable for us as like, you know, good humble Mennonites to acknowledge things like power and privilege. It's also uncomfortable for us as good Midwesterners, right? It may be even uncomfortable for us as good red-blooded Americans, right? In this land of opportunity to acknowledge that some have more power and privilege than others. But this is the reality of it, right? Sometimes this power and privilege is based on things like wealth, Sometimes it's based on race, sometimes it's based on gender, sometimes it's based on uh, cognitive or physical ability, sometimes it's based on things like sexuality. But we acknowledge that there are some among us who have more power and privilege than others. I say this as the poster boy of power and privilege, by the way, right? (laughs) I'm a tall, white, straight Christian man who checks all of the boxes of what it means to hold positions of power and positions of privilege, right? And so it seems as though what's happening within this, uh, this community of the church in Corinth is that people are ignoring these sorts of social dynamics that are at play, ignoring that some have power and privilege and others don't, and ignoring the needs that are, based, uh, that are existing as a result of it. Now, I will say that over the last few years, I've been trying to like, be incredibly mindful of the ways that I hold power and privilege in any sort of social space. And it's been really eye-opening to see um, the way that, like, that power and that privilege is dispersed. Um, because I've begun to be aware of like, the fact that like, certain things are granted to me that other people have to work for. <laughs> that, that there just tends to be an assumption that I can do certain things or hold certain positions of power that, nobody, that other people can't because of certain things that... Um, uh, are part of uh, that are a reality of their life that may they may or may not have chosen right and i 've begun to to be mindful of like the reality of power and privilege and like where I fall on the social hierarchy, not in spite of my faith <laughs> but in light of my faith because of passages like this and it seems to be that part of like what it means to partake of the cup of the Lord and par- uh, partake in the, the or, partaking the bread of of the Lord and the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner is to ignore where we fall on the social hierarchy. Because when we forget that others are on on different places in the social hierarchy, we can begin to assume that everybody experiences the world just like us. And so for those of you that may look like me, like the poster boy of power and privilege, we sometimes forget that not everybody experiences the world like we do. And so when we fail to acknowledge that I may find myself at the top, I forget that not everybody gets to experience the world that way. And so when we enter into community and when we fail to acknowledge where we find ourselves on that social hierarchy, 
and we then begin to ignore the needs of others, Paul says that this is participating in the community of Jesus in an unworthy way. So he says, examine yourselves. Acknowledge like your own sort of power and privilege. Acknowledge where you fall on the social hierarchy. And only then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For all who eat, the, eat and drink without discerning the body, who don't discern of the needs of the community around them, eat and drink judgment against themselves. So this is his advice. These are his instructions to us. When you come together to participate in the life of faith together, examine yourselves. Examine your own sort of power and privilege, where you find yourself on the social hierarchy, and then begin to discern the needs of others. Because other people may not be in the same sort of space that you are, and it may require acting differently as a result of it. These are some really harsh difficult, uncomfortable words from Paul, but I think that they can actually be really helpful for us, particularly as we think about the reality of difference among us, uh, in a, in a, the difference among us as a community. Um, within uh, the world of church leaders, there's an awful, uh, there's an awful lot of conversation around uh, this idea of success. Um, what is success within the church? How do we define success? How do we measure things like success? And one of the ways that success is often want to, uh, that we often want to measure success is the way that we measure success uh, in the rest of the world, with like hardcore data, numbers, if you will. And so one of the ways that some church leaders will begin to uh, measure success is by the number of like attendance. Right? So how many people are coming regularly? Or how many new attenders do you have? And what percentage of these new attenders are you retaining? Right? That's what success looks like. Others measure success based on numbers like budgets. Yeah? How much money is your church raising? How much money is your church able to spend because of that, mo- that money? Right? This is how many people measure success within the church. And before you start audibly getting ill in the pew, know that I reject all of that. Right? <laughs> And as I began to like wrestle with this question, um, like what does success within the church look like? I began to wonder, like, what if we began to measure success by the size of our margins? Meaning, like, what if we began to measure success within the community of Jesus based on like the size of our margins and the amount of people that find themselves on the margin? Because here's the reality: when we talk about a community, there are always going to be people that are in. There are going to be people who find themselves like deeply embedded and deeply woven within the life of the community, never once having to ask, like, do I belong within this community? But there will always be people who find themselves on the margins, on the fringes, on the outside looking in. And sometimes people find themselves on the margins, on the fringes, on the outside looking in by choice, um, not sure if they want to like dabble into the community in that sort of way. But there will be people who find themselves on the margins also by consequence. Meaning that those who find themselves in on a community will either knowingly or unknowingly make decisions, and the consequences of those decisions means that some people will be out and some people will be in. Within a community, those who are in will either uh, knowingly or unknowingly make decisions, and the consequences of that are that some are on the outside while others remain in. Sometimes this will be like... um, Uh, knowledgeably or ignorantly making decisions, and the consequence are that some are on the outside while others remain in. 
And so I, th- I think this is the dynamic that we see happening within the church in Corinth, right? Those that are in, the wealthy, those that can get there on time, either knowingly or unknowingly are making a decision about when they start, when they eat. And the consequences of that is that some find themselves on the margins, going away hungry and thirsty, while those that are in go away full and drunk. And I think success within the church begins to ask, how big are our margins? And how can we examine where we find ourselves on the social hierarchy and begin to make decisions that affect the need, or that begin to address the needs of others? So as we begin to think about this idea of like difference and holding differences of, of opinions, difference of perspective, different ideology, I think the wrong question for us to be asking, and I will specifically speak to those that look like me, <laughs> the poster boys of power and privilege, I think the wrong question to be asking is, how will this decision affect me? <laughs> but I think perhaps a better question for us to be asking in the midst of difference and in the midst of conflict and trying to decide a way forward is the question of, like, how will this affect those who are on the margins? See, I want to suggest that as we find ourselves in the midst of difference, regardless of where we find ourselves on the social hierarchy, perhaps a more faithful question for us to be asking in the midst of this difference and, and and in the midst of of conflict, is how do we widen our circles and narrow our margins? How can we make decisions in the midst of difference that widen the circle of inclusion to represent this all-inclusive love of God, and in the process, narrow the margins of those who find themselves on the outside looking in? Now, coming back to the poster boys of power and privilege, I recognize that there's a tension here, right? Because to widen the circle means that some of us may lose some control. Some of us may lose a bit of power, and it may feel like we are losing things in the process. And I just want to suggest, I think that's actually the point. (laughs) See, in Paul's letter to the Philippians in chapter 2, he writes to them saying, If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mi- and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. And what Paul does now is quote what some have believed to be like the earliest Christian hymn. So like, you know those moments when you're trying to read the words to a song, but you can't read them because you're trying to sing them? Like that's what would have been happening here, Right. I'm not going to sing, by the way. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This passage is often called the kenosis passage, um, and kenosis means self-emptying. And so we see this happening within this passage, right? Jesus did not consider uh, equality with God something to be grasped, or I love how the NRSV puts it, exploited. <laughs> but rather he emptied himself, like becoming the lowest of the low, letting go of all of that power and privilege that he might have had. 
And as the passage goes on, it seems to suggest that this is something that we, particularly those who have power and privilege, are called to embody and emulate. Because the next part of the song says, Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Those are some big uh, props to be given to Jesus, right? It seems to suggest that there's something about this kenosis movement, this this movement, this impulse to self-empty that leads to being held at such a high esteem. And it seems as though for those of us who have power and privilege, that this is something for us to emulate within community. And so yes, as we ask this question of how do we widen our circle and narrow our margins, that may require letting go. That may mean like leveraging some of our power and privilege for the sake of others. And I think that's actually kind of the the point. (laughs) And so as we think about self-emptying, as we think about like what it means to to move forward in the light of difference of opinion and perspective and ideology, I think uh, a faithful way of doing that is asking the question of how do we widen our circle and narrow our margins? Here's the fun part. Yeah, because I get to be a little bit of a cheerleader for our community, and I'm not going to do whatever it was that Ramona did last week. I have, no, I can't do that. Anyways, um, because I, I think that we've done a really good job at this historically as a congregation. Um, as we think back over like recent history, like I think whether we would have said that this was our reasoning behind it or not, I think we've embodied this in really beautiful ways. Um, so for example, we have a ramp out back. At one point in time, we did not have a ramp out back. I've heard different, different reasons why we got the ramp, um, but all of it comes down to this idea of there were people who wanted to be part of the congregation and couldn't because of like, physical abilities. And so we built a ramp. We widened our circle and tried to narrow our margins. And this was costly, right? Like quite literally costly, right? It cost money from the congregation, but it also cost money from you as an individual because that's how we as a church have money is from individuals contributing to it, right? This was a costly decision, but it was one where we, we were asking the question of how do we widen our circle and narrow our margins to include the most people into this love of God that exists here in this community. Um, what about this one? Uh, scents. Have you ever noticed like you don't smell a whole lot of like perfume or cologne when you walk in here? Um, when I was candidating, like, you know, uh, my, my big interview time, uh, Jared, it might have been you, I had an email that said, oh, by the way, like, we're a scent-free community, so don't wear any cologne. I was like, what the heck? That's weird. Then I began to, like, hear, like, some people literally have, like, physical reactions to scents and, like, cause illness within them. And so the congregation was like, well, we can do without cologne and perfume for a day, so why don't we become a scent-free community, right? Asking this sort of question, how do we widen our circle and narrow our margins? It may be a costly one, right? You can't wear your Gucci cologne or whatever it might be that you had, right? We're Mennonites. We wouldn't choose like Bob, right? That was like a dollar at Dollar General. Okay, anyways. Um, how do we mar- widen our circles, narrow our margins? Um, or this one, uh, air conditioning. When I got here six years ago and was interviewing, again, wearing dress pants and a long sleeve dress shirt, at the end of June, we did not have air conditioning. I don't know that anybody warned me about that one, though. I tend to sweat a lot, and it was miserable. Like, summers were miserable in here. And I think we kind of wore it like a badge of honor, right? Like, we don't need air conditioning. But here's the thing. 
We began to hear people weren't coming on Sunday mornings because they couldn't tolerate the heat. And not tolerate it as in like, suck it up. Like, they had physical reactions to it. Like, it would make them physically ill for like weeks as a result of the heat. And so we began to say, how do we widen our circle and narrow our margins? Okay, we can like, you know, buy an air conditioner and begin to run it. If that means that more people can participate. So even on a day like today where it was like 65 this morning, it was like 100% humidity. It was gross out. We run our air conditioning. You know why? Because now people can come and be part of it. How do we widen our circles, narrow our margins? Last one here. COVID and mass. We spent an awful lot of time on Zoom over the last two years. Um, this was a conviction of like, how do we actually love our neighbors well in this season? But as we made this move, like this was one that actually like narrowed our circle and widened our margins, right? Because not everybody had access to technology. Not everybody knew how to use that technology. And so you know what people did? They said, I have an extra laptop. Let me give it to you. <laughs> you don't know how to use it? I'll get up extra early and I'll walk you through the process. This, this movement might have narrowed our circle and widened our margins, and yet we attempted to widen our circle still in the midst of that and narrow our margins. We came back and we started wearing masks. And we took our masks off because things looked good, but then numbers started to go back up and people began to get concerned and people were like, I don't know if I can still be part of this. And we said, okay, let's put on masks, right? We wore masks longer than most churches that I know. Why? Because we wanted to widen our circle because we knew that other people couldn't participate if we didn't and we wanted to narrow our margins. So we wore them. People are often like, I don't like wearing a mask. Well, no, duh. Who likes wearing a mask, right? but we want to widen our circle and narrow our margins. So we're not wearing them now. We may again, right? If numbers start to tick up, we want to widen our circle, narrow our margins. Um, certainly throughout all of these examples, we have stumbled our way, haven't lived, out, lived it out perfectly. Certainly there are just as many examples where we stumbled our way through it, failed miserably, and I'm sure that there are even some that are less tangible uh, uh, examples where we haven't done this well, but I, I think we've attempted to do this well. And so my prayer for us is that we keep embodying this. We keep striving to embody this idea of how do we widen our circles and narrow our margins. We've been asking this question of do our differences have to lead to our division? If we stop embodying this, if we stop striving towards something like this, then yes, <laughs> Our differences will absolutely lead to our division. But if we embody this, if we keep striving towards this, if we see this as the very mind and impulse of Jesus himself, then no, our differences don't have to lead to our division. Because I'm committed to this idea that we can find a better way forward when we hold to this idea. So my prayer for us is that um, we would continue to embody this. And we would submit it to God and that we would ask God's spirit to lead us, guide us, and shape us more and more into the way of Jesus as we pursue it together. Amen.